Pampers Cruisers 360 is the must-have diaper to help keep your baby from taking it right off, which, if you've experienced this, can lead to complete chaos. With its 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your baby for a comfortable fit, your active baby can move freely. Think of it as baby yoga pants. Cruisers 360 offers a gap-free fit and has a blowout barrier at the back of the diaper to help stop any unwanted disasters. The best part? That stretchy waistband makes it so easy to change your wiggly baby, who is always on the move and can't be stopped. Just rip the sides to remove and roll it up with the disposal tape on the back. Voila! Pampers Cruisers are available in sizes 3 to 7 and now feature fun new prints. Pair with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, made from 100% plant-based cloth that grips the mess without fear of tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. This podcast is brought to you by the film Ezra from Bleecker Street, directed by Tony Goldwyn with an incredible ensemble that includes Robert De Niro, Bobby Cannavale, and Whoopi Goldberg. Ezra is a funny and endearing story about Max, a divorced father struggling to co-parent his autistic son, Ezra. When faced with difficult decisions about the future, they embark on a cross-country road trip that has a transcendent impact on both their lives. Deadline calls Ezra a touching testament to the power of love. In theaters May 31st. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Laura Vanderkam. I'm a mother of four, an author, journalist, and speaker. And this is Sarah Hart Unger. I'm a mother of three, practicing physician, and blogger on the side. We are two working parents who love our careers and our families. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. Here we talk about how real women manage work, family, and time for fun. From figuring out childcare to mapping out long-term career goals, we want you to get the most out of life. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. This is Laura. This is episode 136, which is airing in early to mid-March. We're going to be interviewing Stu Friedman, who is the author of the new book, Parents Who Lead. Uh, He's also a professor emeritus at Wharton uh, here in Philadelphia. So we've gotten to meet in person a couple of times, which has been great. He's a wonderful person to talk to. So I'm really looking forward to that. That's so cool. Too bad he couldn't have joined you live. We probably could have worked that out, but that would have required me to think ahead. Yeah, (laughs) and that would have been hard. my, My brain's a little bit mushy right now because still in the newborn phase, you know. Yes. Well, plus, then you'd be a little farther from the baby, which makes things harder. And there you go. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he wrote a book, and I know you enjoyed it. But I just thought this would be a good time to update our listeners about how our reading is going in this year, now that we're, you know, about a sixth of the way through, as this is airing. Did you end up getting to read a lot? Well, I mean, I was going to say on your maternity leave. But again, every time I say that, I feel bad because you didn't you don't really get... 
that kind of yeah, protected swaths of time. Yeah, there's there's upsides and downsides as we've discussed, and um, in general, I like the upsides. Um, so I'm just keeping that in mind as I am doing all sorts of multitasked work. <laughs> but uh, I have been able to read because one of the upsides of nursing is you have a ton of time to read. Like you can't really do much else. I mean, I do have to do other things. I'm like walking around the house carrying a baby, but. I, I sit there and read on the Kindle app on my phone. I've gotten through a couple books. I read Celine on your recommendation. Did you like it? I, yeah, I, I thought there was, you know, I, I liked a lot of it. I think there was some strange, epi- uh, like, is he actually accusing George Bush Sr. of being part of the murder of the Chilean finance minister? Unclear. Well, he didn't like, even- he because didn't, he's really, did he not specify who the president was? But it's like um, a person known to everyone who's in the CIA and somebody else says the vice president. I'm like, oh, that's know. so funny. See, I'm so much less politically minded that I was like, eh, vague. Like, I did not, it wasn't didn't try to, <laughs> it was not I that vague. <laughs> yeah, it was, I guess it wasn't that vague, but it also was not like a central point of that. No, actual, but it just, I, so I, I kept coming back to that. I'm like, well, that is a pretty stunning accusation. I didn't think that was, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Like interesting. common knowledge interesting. or anything. I, I'm pretty yeah. sure it's not because that. <laughs> I don't anyway. know. Well, maybe if we ever have him on our guests, we'll be like, did you mean to make a political statement with that book? Or was it just more of a character study? Which is how I read it. Yes. And okay. I felt like the Celine character herself was what I really enjoyed about it. Yeah, no, she was she was quite the interesting private eye out there. I wish her husband had been more developed too, as her she was sort of one of the least developed sidekick characters in a And he was intriguing. And he was like, intriguing. They developed like, him enough to be interesting, but I agree I would have liked to know more of a backstory and yeah. yeah. So but I mean I'm as you've wrote, the descriptions of Yellowstone and the area around Yellowstone, the Montana parts of, of Yellowstone are, are just gorgeous. And yes. I really enjoyed reading that, especially having been there about two years ago now. So, you know, uh, he describes it well, and that is kind of how that wild, wonderful area of this country looks. So I, I really enjoyed that part of it. You know, I've, I've been reading a lot of other stuff too. I've got to go through some lists and figure out what I want to read next because I just finished Celine and I finished a book called A Time to Build, um, which is mm. about sort of politically the decline of institutions and how we should probably have stronger institutions in this country between um, voluntary associations, churches, unions, things like that, that people join that they don't have to, right? And those are have gotten a lot weaker, all of those things that, on both sides of the political spectrum. So interesting argument. Uh, yeah. How about you? What have you been reading? Yeah. So, I mean, this year was the first year I kind of tried to set up reading lists ahead of time. Normally I'm much more like, okay, I'm done. So what am I going to read next? Um, And this time I made a Q1 list that had about eight books in it. And Q1 is not over as the time it airs. And I'm done about five of the books. So we'll see. I, I do enjoy kind of not having to think about my next read and having it all selected for me, even though I guess I'm the one still doing this. <laughs> like, okay, so it's, it's just past Sarah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's past Sarah. Um, but no, I, I find that sometimes if I don't do that, I get stuck in this like hinterland of, oh, I need to pick something new, but what should I pick? And then, you know, I don't have something from the library and then I have to put it on the hold list. But if you think ahead, you can really game that library's hold list system and 
I've actually been really pleasantly surprised that some fairly popular titles have come through for me uh, faster than I thought. Like I just got The Dutch House um, mm-hmm. by Ann Patchett from our library, and I assume that would take weeks to months, but it actually was much faster. Um, I did just finish uh, The Snow Child, and I thought it was really another one of those. Uh, I don't know. It's not a perfect book, but it's got great outdoor vistas as well, and I okay. think I'm craving wintry scenes because we don't have any actual <laughs> You don't winter. actually get me. <laughs> so um, I had somebody on my Instagram comment that they read that paired with The Great Alone, which is also set in Alaska. And I'm like, oh, what a perfect little winter winter moment. Yeah, winter duo. So maybe I yeah. should just go to Florida. I'm not feeling like I need that. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's lots of beachy tropical reads. Actually, I have a lot of them on my Q2 list. There's a couple um, from some Miami offer that, author that is set in Cuba. So I'll, I'll report back about those. Okay. Awesome. Well, we are looking forward to this interview with Stu. So we'll get right to that. Well, Sarah and I are excited to welcome Stuart Friedman to the program. He is the co-author with Alyssa Westring of the new book, Parents Who Lead. He is also a professor emeritus now, I believe, at Wharton, uh, which is at the University of Pennsylvania here in Philadelphia. He's hosted a great show on Sirius XM Radio on work and life. I've been able to be on that a few times, which has been a lot of fun. And he is just an all-around great person. So we're excited to have you here, Stu. How's everything going? Very exciting times (laughs) in my life. Thanks so much for having me, Laura. Sarah, it's great to be here. No problem. So tell us a little bit about your career journey and your family as well. All right. Well, uh, it's a long story. I'm going to be 68 this summer, so I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, I have three kids, uh, been married since 1980, so that's going on 40 years to uh, a woman who I met at a graduate school interview, uh, and we ended up going to the same graduate school together. Uh, She in clinical psychology and me in um, organizational psychology at the University of Michigan. And our eldest is 32, and we also have... uh, 29-year-old and a 26-year-old, so boy, boy, girl. The eldest got married last year, and by adoption, I now have a 13-year-old grandson. Wow, that's awesome. And next month, our first biologically created grandchild arrives, if all goes well. Uh, So we're really looking forward to that. Yeah, new new phase of life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And 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 my father died 2 weeks ago. So Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry to hear. That. 90. Oh wow. Well, there you but go. That was, you know, that was a profound change as yeah. well. And so it's uh it's this magical cycle of of life that is uh I'm I'm right in the thick of it and yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's exactly. quite quite mysterious. Uh so that's a a brief on sort of my family life. Shall I say more about how that intersects with my well, career? Sure, your career, because I know you had a, a corporate career and then you wound up um, over at the University of Pennsylvania. Maybe you can talk a little bit about, about that. Well, I started at the University of Pennsylvania in 1984 uh, in, in, uh, in the psychology area as an organizational psychologist and have been teaching uh, leadership and teams for, for a long, long time. When my first was born, though, in 1987, I, I had a kind of epiphany when I realized that I now had to take care of him, which is something that perhaps you've talked about this on your show. I don't know if this is more true of men than women, but I had no clue. 
of what I was getting into. Um, but I, I couldn't stop thinking about what I needed to now do to take care of him and to, to create a world in which he was going to grow up safe. So I, uh, I brought this question to my students in, in the uh, Wharton MBA classroom. This is a course on you know, basic management, uh, intro management class. And I set aside the, the, uh, the class session for that day, which was about motivation and reward systems. And I said, you know, there's something else I need to talk with you about. And I, I uh, just started ranting. I hadn't completely unprepared, uh, but well, it, it was uh, it was a memorable day because I, I asked the students, "What are you, as future business leaders, going to do to ensure the healthy development of the next generation, not just of talent in your companies, but period?" And of course, they were annoyed that I wasn't dealing with the topic that they had prepared for. This was back in the day when students used to prepare for class. Let's not get into that. <laughs> um, okay. but, but further, uh, you know, there were people saying, uh, you know, Professor, nobody cares about your family. And why are we talking about families and children here when that's not really the agenda? We're in a business school. Of course, other people in the room, men and women, were quite interested in this question and really leaned into the conversation. One of them, in response to my question, what are you going to do to cultivate the next generation and make it a, a safe environment for them to grow up? And one of them said, well, you're the professor, you tell us. And of course, I had no answers. I only had the question. And that's what I made a career of is asking annoying, provocative questions. If you want proof of that, just ask my daughter. She'll tell you that I'm really good at asking annoying questions. But putting that aside for a moment, it was an important moment for me because I realized that with my training and access, I, I could explore this question seriously, and I did. So I founded the Wharton Work-Life Integration Project in 1991 the same year that I was asked to start the leadership program at the Wharton School. So in parallel, I was pursuing new knowledge, practical knowledge about how to cultivate leaders, which is what my dissertation had been about the decade prior and where I was working on with companies on their talent management systems. And at the same time, going into the field and also doing survey research on what does it take for people to integrate the different parts of their lives in a way that works for all of them. So notice the name of the project was the Work-Life Integration Project. It was not about the Balance Project, and I've been railing for three decades plus now against that term that's common in our you know, vernacular. Well, let's, I mean, why is that? Why? Because, you know, one of the reasons we wind up using it a lot is that's what people search for. Um, yeah. <laughs> because it's the, the, the word that, that people use. But why do you like integration as opposed to balance? Well, integration or harmony fit are better terms than balance because the balance metaphor, you know, the scales in balance or a seesaw, it connotes in your mind and to all those a part of the conversation, a win-lose, right? One's up, the other's down. Uh, and that is, uh, that's limiting. It's, of course, true that we have to make sacrifices and that we can't have everything all at once. 
no one has balance and i've been studying this forever and i can i can tell you no one has perfect balance and no one has it all at the same time and the idea of uh thinking about trade-offs and sacrifice as the default in your head and in your actions and the way you see the world leaves you um, missing opportunities for taking action intelligent mindful proactive conscious uh, action that is intended instead to create wins or success for not just your work not just your family not just your community not just yourself personally mind body and spirit we're all but all four parts of your life and if you frame it that way if you think about what can i do that's going to have a positive impact on all the different parts either directly or indirectly like say for example by taking care of yourself you become a less annoying colleague or and a better mother uh, and friend uh, if you think about well how can i take action that's going to be good for all the different parts of my life and the people who matter most to me in the different parts well then you are much likely to pursue and find those wins instead of assuming trade-off yes. so that's 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 one of the main reasons why the balance metaphor is 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 harmful and why it's much better to think in terms of harmony i like the metaphor of the jazz quartet uh, which i wrote about in in the total leadership book a dozen years ago where you think about these different parts of your life as uh, as as instruments or players in a jazz quartet where the idea is to try to create something beautiful together where there's improvisation constant change on a motif that is being developed over time not at a single moment and and sometimes you know you just hear the trumpet and the other instruments are musical term resting other times you're hearing well the bass and the drums are playing and the others are silent but they're always listening to each other and responsive to each other and it's a whole that you're looking at uh, it's a more dynamic and i think realistic way to think about the relationship of work and home and community and and self the last thing i'll say about this and i think it's it's an important one is in the late 90s i was asked to join the ford motor company so i took a leave from wharton after being a professor there for 15 years and left for a few years to serve as the head of leadership development for Ford Motor globally. So my wife and I, now we have three kids, they're 12, nine and six at the time. And we moved back to Ann Arbor where we went to graduate school, except now we're not starving graduate students. I'm a, I'm a fat cat senior executive at a big company. And so our lifestyle was very, very different. And, you know, I got there having written an article in the Harvard Business Review called Work and Life, the End of the Zero-Sum Game, which was one of the first pieces to really address this issue. And I inherited a small team that eventually grew during our time there where total leadership was created. But when I first arrived, the people who were in the Leadership Development Center said, hey, you're Mr. Work Life. I need Fridays off. Or you know, I, I need this, I need that. And I said, whoa, wait a minute. You're working for me. I now have a real boss for the first time in my life who's expecting a lot and very, very demanding. How are you going to help me and us succeed? 
how by your being off on Friday, is that going to help us? So yeah, you had to look at the the business case for things, which we're going to take. <laughs> speaking of the business case, Stu, we got to yes. take a, an ad break real quick. Uh, so we'll, we'll be back in one second. So we are back with Professor Stuart Friedman, who is the author of the new book, Parents Who Lead. Um, and we've been talking about why we want to think of work and life as more of a jazz quartet as opposed to a balance metaphor. And, and when you do this right, there can be career wins to thinking about family as well. You were mentioning that you were looking at this corporate from the perspective of like, how does Friday off help me, right? Like how, how does this as help advance our bottom line as the boss? So um, what did you find? I mean, what is, what is sort of the business case for this? Well, one of the reasons why this total leadership approach works both for individuals and now in the focus we've got for people who are in parenting partnerships, that's how we refer to people raising kids together because the, it comes in many different forms, of course, those partnerships. One of the reasons why it, it seems to work in, in different societies and different cultures around the world, because we've brought it to uh, com companies and, and, and individuals worldwide, is that the, the method and the, the principles are customized to the individual's situation. So there's no one best way to make it work, except that it has to work not just for you and your kids, but for your career and the people in your work environment, as well as in your community. And that's the leadership mindset that we train people to adopt. So the, the, the key to success in this is to think as a leader about how you can make change happen in a way that's good for you and for us. And so when, when people came to me and said, here's what I need, I said to them, great tell me how that's going to help us and what i found and this was this was sort of the magical question in a, in a way that uh, really opened up possibilities for innovation you take responsibility for thinking through how what you want is, is good for you is going to have some kind of positive effect for uh, what we're trying to do together and when you challenge people with that question and i've done this now tens of thousands of times I've never met anyone who couldn't come up with a really good answer because what they're asking for is something that they really care about. And they're going to get very creative about how they can make change happen in a way that's good for them and for you. So, so there's no, you know, there's no one, you know, magic solution other than to think of yourself as a leader in the different parts of your life and that your charge and your ability really is to, look for opportunities to make things work for not just you. And that makes it easier for everyone. So when uh, people come up with the idea of, say, shutting off their online stream for, say, a chunk of four hours uh, on a Wednesday afternoon, and they, and they realize that that's going to be something that is going to be good for them and for their productivity, as well as for their kids and their friends, you can fill in the blanks as to how that would play out, right? Uh, they then pitch it to their boss in the following way. I'd like to try for the next month or so an experiment in which I'm, I'm offline for, you know, for this chunk of time for the next you know, 
four weeks or so. And I believe that that's going to improve my performance in ways that you will benefit, dear boss. Would you be willing to try that for a month and see if it works? And if it doesn't, we'll try something different or go back to the way things were. Is that something you'd be willing to try? And most most people will say, sure, uh, you're doing this for me. I get it. Let's try it, which is a very different scenario than, okay, I need Wednesdays off. I need to be off Wednesdays because I need to get to my kids, you know, whatever, the soccer game or, you know, doctor appointment. And and the way that most managers respond to that kind of question is, uh, no, why? I, do you realize the pressures that I'm under and you're asking me for, for more? Why? Why? Get out. No. <laughs> or uh, if I have to, here's another demand on me. But if you instead think of it in terms of how you're doing this is going to be beneficial to your boss, and of course it can be, and you and you set it up as an experiment that's time limited over which your manager has control and influence on the outcome, and you adjust if it's not working with her, with your boss, well, that's much more likely to succeed. And it's going to overcome the resistance that people have to trying something new. So does that answer your question? It, it does. <laughs> I have a dumb question. I, I, I have, and I have, Laura, can I, I know I said I'd be oh, quiet. Oh, yeah, yeah, go one, ahead. <laughs> one <laughs> random follow-up. Um, so do you find that men and women respond differently to some of these concepts? Because as you're speaking, I'm like personally very excited and happy to hear a male person in particular discuss this because most of the time, Unfortunately, that's that's not the messaging I've heard from men of your generation, to be completely honest, men that I work yes. alongside. So I'm I love what you're saying, but I'm curious whether you get different responses that are gender based. That's a great question, Sarah. When I first started doing this work, you know, in the early nineties, I was one of the very few men talking about this stuff. So when we convened uh, the Wharton Work Life Roundtable in the early nineties, which brought together business leaders, you know, the early movers in the work-life movement, friends and colleagues of mine you know, who were policy advocates and you know, early change agents, as well as government agencies. And, and, and we held it at the Wharton School. There was a flurry, uh, really an explosion of interest, like what's a man at the Wharton School of Business doing talking about children? Huh, what? Uh, so I was an odd messenger and and got a lot of attention simply because of that, because I, I stood out uh, and was talking about an issue that was, if you ask your mothers, they'll tell you, because <laughs> you guys are a generation behind me. It was, a, it was an emergent issue that was the sole province of women, practically. I mean, there were a few other guys. Uh, and so... One of the things that I think made the Total Leadership Initiative successful and continues to grow is that I very consciously and subversively used language that was going to resonate with men to get into the issues that were of great concern to men and women, of course, but that there was a stigma associated with uh, uh, approaching as a man. So total leadership was about improving performance and results at work. 
and at home and in the community and for yourself personally, your physical health, mental health, spiritual growth and development. So notice what the lead is there. Total leadership is about improving performance and results at work. Okay, that sounds right. I can I can talk about that. That's something I care about. So we very deliberately used language that men could get into. And that that worked. That worked. And then of course once you open up the the conversation. So what we help people to do is learn how to be real, to be whole, to be innovative. Those are the three principles we found are crucial to growing as a leader and to finding harmony among the different parts of your life. And it starts with your values and your vision. What do you care about? Where are you going? Where have you come from? And why does that drive you to where you want to go? Being real and writing about that, talking about that, getting peer-to-peer feedback on that. And of course, that's that opens people up to who am I? What's my purpose as a leader? Not just here, but everywhere. Who are the most important people? Be whole meant to identify the most important people to you at work in your career, as well as at home, however you define home or family, and in your community, however you define that. And what do those people expect of you? And what do you expect of them? And now talk to them, and here's how to do that, about what you actually expect from each other, not what you think they expect, but what you actually expect. So we train people to do, this is leadership basics, Build trust, gain support, see the reality of what people actually expect of you, not what you think they expect. And what most people discover is that what other people expect of them is less than what they thought, especially ambitious, high potential men and women, less than and a little bit different than what they thought. And if you don't believe me, try this at home because you'll or wherever you are, because you'll find that. And this is the great aha. People go into these conversations fearful, Uh, men as well as women, they're afraid. They're especially afraid to talk to their mothers. That's the most critical stakeholder in life, it seems. Um, Most people are afraid of what they're gonna hear. They have a conversation like this with their, their mothers. They find that they have more support and love in their lives than they had imagined, particularly at work. People want you to be successful and they want to help you in a way that's good for both of you. So then that leads to ideas for innovation. So the third principle we found that people who are really good at this is that they're constantly innovating. They're constantly experimenting with ways that are good, again, for all the different parts, what we call four-way wins. And, you know, men, once they're, you know, given not just license and permission to pursue these issues, but, you know, when this is done in companies, they're like, required to talk to your kids and your spouse and your friends as well as your business colleagues about what you need from each other and to get creative about how to solve the puzzle of integrating the different parts and when we first did this 20 years ago at ford with our mid-career high potentials from all around the world men and women it was like a festival they were so happy that we were compelling them to address their whole lives, yeah. so Stu, not just their business lives. So Stu, I want to pivot to this you know, subject of your new book, The Parents Who Lead, yeah. because you're taking this idea of envisioning you know, where you want to go and being innovative and, and getting feedback and, and applying it to parenting in particular. And, and you've been telling us, of course, that this is part of 
the whole broader total leadership. Um, but this book in particular focuses on the parenting aspect of it. I think most parents are not used to thinking of themselves as leaders. But why do you They're think not. that's the right metaphor for what parents are in their families? Well, what is it that leaders do? Leaders see reality as best they can, and then they try to take action to bring others along with them to a better tomorrow. They try to mobilize people towards a goal that matters. That's what leaders do. And you can do that in an organization that's hierarchical and you have people reporting to you, but you can do that anywhere. So the, the conception of leadership that we're talking about here is not so much about executive authority in a hierarchy. It's about how you get people to go along with you to a, what you envision as a better tomorrow, one that's going to be good for you and for them. And that's kind of what we're doing as parents, isn't it? One hopes. What is it? <laughs> we're trying well, to drag I mean, the children in, to something, but. Uh... <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, so, well, I mean, that, yes, it's, it's hard. It's hard. I mean, we, this, is, this is one of the, the light motifs of our book, of course, is that this stuff is difficult as leadership is. But what we find is that when, when we help people to envision their roles, as leaders and to use some of the evidence-based knowledge we have about uh, what it takes to lead well, like being able to articulate a compelling image of an achievable future, a vision. We, and we have some tools for how to actually do that. And it's not that complicated. Anyone can do it. It starts with identifying your core values, which anyone can do and should do, sharing those with your partner and talking about what you have in common, what you don't articulating in a page or so your description of an ideal day 15 years from now. What happens on that day, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening? Who are you with? What are you doing? And most importantly, why? What's the impact you're having? So writing that out, having your partner do the same, your partner in parenting, comparing those and realizing, oh my gosh, we have completely different futures. What are we going to do about that? Or wow, there's a lot of commonality or whatever it is, but to get on the same page. And that's often a challenging conversation, but a, a, a crucial one to have. You, it starts with that, with being real and articulating, you know, your, with passion, what it is that you're trying to do. And for some people in our, who've read our book and who've been in our program that we've been doing for the last few years, the, the research basis for this, for parents who lead, they realize, you know, that's it. I don't need to do any more. We've got, we're going to do this now. This picture of 15 years from now, there's, there's stuff that we could be doing now. And of course, we try to help them hold on now. Take the next step first, which is identify who matters most to you in your life, what you think is important to them, and then talk to them. And starting with your kids. Uh, so they get on the same page as to what they think their kids need from them as parents, separately and together. And we, we distill the essence of the literature and child development uh, in terms of what is it that children need. We're not child psychologists, we're organizational psychologists, but we, 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 we sort of curated the wisdom of that field just to help frame the conversation about what your children need and how to talk to them at different ages. You know, obviously you talk to a four-year-old differently than a 14-year-old, but what we have found is that people come up with you know creative ways to talk to their kids to develop more meaningful connections and to build trust with them by listening to them 
here's what is important to us. What do you think about that? How does that relate to how you're thinking about your future? For littler kids, what does a good mom do? Um, what do you want to do? What's, what do you need from us? And so by engaging your key stakeholders, very Whartney kind of term, you're, you're leading by listening, building trust, and then trying to create new ways of getting things done that are good for them and for you. And of course, you're doing that in the context of doing the same kinds of work with your business colleagues, as well as you know, your childcare providers and teachers and friends and neighbors. But it's not like you're saying, I need this from you. I need this from you. I need this from you. It's what's important to you. So you're taking that leadership leap and seeing yourself through their eyes. And this is, this is why it's all about leadership. Seeing the world as other people do and then crafting solutions that make sense for them and for you in the context of this very dynamic social system that you can indeed influence if you see yourself as capable of having that influence, which most people realize they have more freedom and control than they otherwise thought when you don't step back and instead you're reactively you know, responding to the day-to-day -day grind of just getting through the freaking day. Which there is a lot so, of that. <laughs> But I am so I'm like I'm listening to this and I'm thinking like about our current tiny little, you know, day-to-day -day struggles and I'm I'm thinking instead of an ideal day 15 years from now, I need to sit my children down and talk about what an ideal morning could look like 15 days from now <laughs> and then get my stakeholders to weigh in on, you know, what they feel might be good solutions and maybe they can come up with some experiments just like you talked about with the employees of how that might benefit them and benefit me and I totally see how this could work. And one of the th That's a great idea, Sarah. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, so well, I'm going to use that with your permission. But but one of the things Absolutely. you know Stu does talk about is this idea of little experiments, right? That you know, there you're as a change agent, as a leader, you you I mean, you are trying to direct toward this big future, but you need to make little bets along the way and and see what works yeah. and see what doesn't. So, yes. uh, you know, what are some of those areas to try these little experiments in? I mean, I know you've talked about generating quality time, like coordinating logistics. I'm curious, some of the little experiments you've you've seen work as we're we're kind of getting a little yeah. practical here. Uh, well, it, one of the magical things about this work with with parents and um, parenting partnerships is. Uh, once they go through the process of stepping back, I mean, this is the hard part, is to find the space and realize, okay, for me to grow as a, my family, as, as, a, as a leader, uh, which doesn't mean being a micromanaging jerk like the person you have to deal with every day in the office. It's you know, being the kind of inspiring leader who you want to be, right? That's, that's where some people, uh, if I could just digress on this for a moment, they resist the idea of thinking of themselves as leaders because it, it makes it seem like ah, I'm not going to be like that person at the office and and be a demanding, you know, command and control animal with my kids. That's totally inappropriate. Well, of course, yeah, you don't want to be that person. You want to be an inspiring leader who actually teaches kids values and helps to liberate them to become the people they want to become, which is what good leaders do. What do people come up with? Well, everyone comes up with something that is unique and distinctive to their situation. But we have found there are, there are common kinds of uh, experiments that people do. And yes, experiment is a key idea because small is big. Small steps is how you get there. 
you can't just take the giant leap up the mountain. You have to go one step at a time, right? And the you know the smart way to create change is small steps that that uh, allow you to adjust, adjust, adjust. So when people go through the process of thinking, what's most important? Who's most important? What do they need? They come up with all kinds of things that are designed to fit their situation. But common uh, are quality time which is real and it matters. And you know, we bring in some of the research that shows how it's not about quality, quantity rather, it really is about quality. So many people realize, oh, we need to find a way to shut out the digital stream for some period of time so that we can connect as human beings without being mediated you know, through you know, the internet, uh, through digital tools. So let's find ways of doing that. And they will experiment. I mean, everybody comes up with a different way of doing it, but they will, for example, one one person who we write about in in the book, uh, the the father. This is a heterosexual married couple, which is you know obviously not the only form of parenting partnership. But he worked at the Bureau of Land Management, and one of his core values was caring for the earth. And he wanted to teach his kids. He wanted to make sure that his kids knew that like all the time, that that was something that they needed to focus on. And so they came up with an experiment that was designed to um, help to teach their kids, but also to get out into the community and to express you know, the values that he represents at work and to help them to see what he did and why it was important. So they did a hike and pick experiment where they each weekend, you know, for a month, they'd go out and to their community and they they bring trash bags and gloves and they cleaned up their their neighborhood simple but it had all kinds of ripple effects for for both him and his partner in terms of how they thought about themselves thought about their kids and how that affected their work but then there were bigger pieces uh of work that are that people undertook depending on their situation one couple had a child with a rare genetic disorder and the mom was uh and, and their their in-laws uh, lived with them uh no, the, her parents lived with them to help care uh for their child but she was always reluctant to talk about about this challenge that she has this special challenge that she has in her life with her work colleagues but she decided after doing this initial work of thinking through what what's important to me what am i trying to get done what do people really expect of me she realized that she could be more open about the challenges that she faced and also to try to make an impact on the the research that was being done in this rare uh, disease uh, arena. And so she and her husband, they began a fundraiser for um, for this disease and re reaching out to all sectors of their network. And as a result of that, she was actually uh, concerned about whether she was going to make the next level promotion, but her boss, in seeing her taking the lead in doing this fundraising initiative, realized that she had, she was demonstrating real leadership there, and it it changed his perception of her and made her, in his eyes, a more valued asset to their business. That's one of my favorite uh, examples in the book, but you can see. It, it's, there's a, a wide range of things that people do. Another common one is simply coordinating logistics, uh, you know, sharing calendars. Some people don't do that, uh, surprisingly. Uh, but and, and when they do, they realize there's, it's so much easier if you use basic 
you know, project management uh, skills to to coordinate who's doing what, when, et cetera. But that can be as simple as um, meeting over the weekend or at some point on a regular basis to simply talk about what are you doing this week that's going to be hard for you that you need some help with. And everyone around the circle does that. Mm -hmm. So that that's another kind of experiment that people have done. And that is a s simple but very powerful way to bring the family together to demonstrate that, you know, the value of we help each other, we love each other, we're here to support each other, uh, and to get real help, uh, and to know more about the kinds of challenges that we're, we're each facing. So those are some examples. There's lots more. And again, the fun part is you come up with your own. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Sue, so this this is all great and great ideas. We always like to end our interviews with what we call our love of the week, which is uh, ah. something that is, you know, we we see is really cool. It's been fun in our lives um, this this week. And, you know, you've given us a lot of deep fodder, but this can be light and fluffy if you want. <laughs> we can we can hmm. go first as well to uh, let you give, take, oh, a, okay. take a minute to think about it. So, Sarah, what what have you been enjoying this week? Yeah, well, you know, discussing logistics and division of labor, my husband and I have a fairly hard line. I do the birthday parties, most of all of it, actually, but he is in charge of the presents, and he's agreed to this, so I liked not having to worry about that at all. He gave our six-year-old a lovely, shiny skateboard this morning, but my love of the week actually goes to Whole Foods Catering because you can order it online for parties. They do cakes as well, and it's like the world's easiest thing, and yeah. Whole Foods catering for birthday parties. <laughs> we've we've been doing. Uh, I could do my my love of the week uh, ice cream cake for birthdays. Um, but we actually had a fun combo family multi generational thing um, about a week ago that my parents have recently moved out to the East Coast to be closer to my brothers and me. Um, and so my father and mother were able to come for our daughters school play, which was exciting. Um, and then we celebrated my dad's birthday afterwards with ice cream cake. So ice cream cake is my love of the week. It's just, you know, I don't know. Ice cream is good. And it's the good part of cake and ice cream, but without the parts that I don't like. So, <laughs> so it's that's that's what I'd say is my love of the week. Stu, how about you? Oh, my gosh. Well, this is going to seem strange to you. And it's totally different because I'm in such a different you know stage of life. Uh, but um, my father died uh, two weeks ago, and and I've just been thinking about him, you know, ever since. Of course. Uh, and the day of his funeral was uh, he was a, a, about to be ninety. Was one of the greatest days of my life, as uh, and, and the days that followed, you know, the shock of of that loss, the void that that creates, but it when your your heart is just wide open and there's this big hole there and you, you start to try to fill it with uh, with who he was and what he meant and how he continues to, you know, inhabit every fiber of my being. And what does that mean for me? And what does it mean for me in terms of my role as a father? Being able to dig really deep into that whole set of questions has been uh, I wouldn't say joyful, uh, of course, quite the opposite, but so rich in helping me to understand his life, his legacy, and what that means for my life. It's really changed how I think about myself and the world. 
by focusing this concentrated attention, especially as reflected in the social mirror around me of, you know, all the people who were there and continue to be, you know, telling me about how he affected them. It's really changed how I, how I see things. And that has been uh, a deep, deep love uh, for these last two weeks. That's wonderful. I mean, it is, it's good to have a, a long life well lived and then to have a chance to celebrate that. And obviously there's the sadness involved in it, but just, just seeing what he created over his long life and then how that can mm -hmm. reflect on you. I'm sure that's incredibly profound. Well, Stuart, yes. thank you so much for joining us. I hope everyone will pick up their new book, uh, your new book with Alyssa, Alyssa Westring, uh, Parents Who Lead. Lots of great exercises in there, many practical ones, as Stu was mentioning, um, that you can do with your partner, with your children, to figure out how you have this shared vision and, and where you want to go and, and the practical ways to get there. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Stu. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Well, that was exciting talking to Stu. Always great to speak with him again. So our listener question this week is a sticky situation uh, that this one came into Sarah. Uh, this listener writes that they moved into their new district about a year and a half ago. It's highly rated, a lot of parental involvement, been so happy with this community. But the one sticking point for her is she has been unable to become really involved with the PTA because all their meetings, including the general ones, so not just specialty committees or things like that, take place midday on a weekday morning. She says, I find this really puzzling because although we do have a decent population of stay-at-home parents, of the couples that I've met, most uh, do both work outside the home. I've seen this issue brought up by others on social media and the board of the PTA, which does consist 100% of women um, who either are stay-at-home parents or don't work traditional jobs are very sensitive about this. They say these meetings work for them because then they don't need to arrange childcare. Um, she says, I don't know how receptive our school administration would be to request for changing this because... The PTA does a lot for the for the school. Um, and she says she'd like to start a maybe petition or something, uh, but she doesn't want to start some sort of mommy war controversy. Uh, the reason this is particularly sticky for her, she says, I've made the decision to stay in a career that gives me a lot of flexibility just so I can be involved with my kids during the elementary school years. But I feel like I'm not getting that opportunity because I can't make Thursdays at 10 a.m. work. So, Sarah, what do you think? <laughs> Well, it's funny. My first reaction to this was like, has this person been to a meeting? Because, <laughs> because um, I, I've been to like one meeting. And to be fair, I went to like the preschool PTA meeting. So maybe it's different at the elementary school PTA, which also holds its meetings midday. So I've never gone. But I mean, you have to find out what actually happens at these meetings and whether this is worth the fight or not. Because the one meeting I went to, I felt like it was more of an excuse for the women to have something to do and, and get together. And I say women because there were no men there. And then they spent this whole time perseverating over planning one event. And really, like, you know, me being there, I don't know, I guess. And it's not fair because this was just one experience and maybe all meetings are different. But I guess there are other ways to get involved. So you're going to have to decide how hard you want to fight on this issue. Some practical things I thought of were like, maybe you could ask that there would be a digest or notes sent out after each meeting. So you can find out exactly what was discussed, or perhaps you can use that to volunteer for specific events that interest you. For example, maybe you'd want to take over a career day or one specific fundraiser, and it wouldn't necessarily be needed for you to attend midday meetings in order to really do that. 
Um, on the other hand, I felt like it also wouldn't be crazy to get a group of working parents, and that would include fathers, uh, to sign a group letter, um, perhaps asking for alternating meetings in the evening or a non-traditional work time. And my third option was maybe they could just arrange like a WebEx or call-in option and you could just um, call in from work. Um, obviously, not every workplace is flexible enough to allow that, but um, some are. And from a technological standpoint, it shouldn't be that hard to arrange this day and age. Yeah, definitely a, a call-in or WebEx option could could be great. I would also say there there are probably volunteer opportunities that don't involve going to those meetings. I mean, I've I found that I could be a room parent at our elementary school um, by committing to basically four days during the year that I had some availability during the day. So if I had a traditional job, I would have taken a half day um, so I could come in and run the parties, which is basically what it required, and then some support of the teacher uh, behind the scenes, but that was more flexible about when that happened. Um, so, so that might be an option. I would also say that you, if you're going to suggest moving the times, you could maybe split the difference. So our elementary school starts at nine o'clock and you can drop off at 845. I don't know what this listener's timing is, but if, if that was the case for them, maybe you could start the meetings at 845. So the people who were relying on the school for their childcare could start also at 845. And, you know, this doesn't work if you have to be absolutely in the office at 8 a.m. every day. But if you are in a position where you have some sort of flexibility, well, you could come at 845 to 945, go into work a little bit later. And so then it's not this sort of midday thing where you'd have to start the day and not or have to take a full, you know, half day or the day off in order to go. So that might be a way to, to split the difference and have it be um, convenient for the people who are doing it, which I totally get, like not having to arrange childcare is huge if you are a stay-at-home parent because you probably don't have regular childcare that you can then, you know, send your kids to. But it, it would be helpful for um, the people who wouldn't need to totally shift their work hours in order to do this. So, just an idea. All right. Well, this has been Best of Both Worlds. We've been talking to Stuart Friedman about parents who lead, and we'll be back next week with more on making work and life fit together. Thanks for listening. You can find me, Sarah, at theshoebox.com or at the underscore shoebox on Instagram. And you can find me, Laura, at lauravandercam.com. This has been the Best of Both Worlds podcast. Please join us next time for more on making work and life work together. dad the dress 30 to 50 feral hogs if you knew what any of those were you spend too much time online and hey i do too 16th minute of fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me jamie loftus and every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day who are they what made them so notorious how did the internet or the algorithm choose them and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. 
I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.